Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 162, and we're going to talk about one of the most important numbers when you're considering which van to buy, and that is the TCO. We're also going to talk about whether you should let your van warm up or not before you head off into the sunset product review of a strange little gadget, and a tale from the road involving Darwin and a doll. Hello everyone, welcome back, very happy to be here with you. And uh, yeah, guess what? I have managed to beat the flu. I am no longer flu-ridden, and while that is a great thing, I also seem to have COVID now. So um, I I would just like to say that uh, 2023 is shaping up to be a banner year for me. I'm I'm just thrilled with all the happenstances of this year. And uh, well, (laughs) I don't want to turn this podcast into Jeff's personal trials and tribulations, but something did just happen to me that does relate to van life and well it got me to thinking that when you buy a van you have to think about the tco which stands for total cost of ownership now when you buy a van obviously you're looking at the price like hmm this van here is twelve thousand dollars and this one is seventeen thousand dollars i will save five thousand dollars if i buy the twelve thousand dollar van But yeah, it has a few more years on it and it has a few more miles on it. But hey, $5,000, that's a savings. Or is it? You see, when when you're considering the cost of a vehicle, you have to consider the total cost of ownership. That is, how much is it going to cost you to own this vehicle? And the sales price is only one part of that. And some would argue it's not the most important part of that. Now, this isn't too hard to figure out. For example, if you buy a van for $10,000 against 10 miles a gallon, or a van for $15,000 against 20 miles a gallon, if you drive a lot in just a few years, that more expensive van to purchase is going to save you money just on the amount of fuel it goes through. That's just one example, but there are many others. And uh, we're going to talk about those here today. One thing I am going to ignore, though, is insurance. Different vans cost different amounts of insurance, but that varies greatly based on what zip code you're in, more so than what van you have. So don't forget, insurance is a cost. Which insurance you pick can be a big deal. Remember, if you're going to finance a van, you're going to need to pay for collision, which is often the most expensive part of insurance. So Just keep that in mind. But we're going to ignore that for now because it's such a crazy variable that I can't really talk intelligently about it. But what I can talk intelligently about are the four basic parts of total cost of ownership. First, of course, is the cost of the van. That's pretty easy. Second is the cost of the fuel. Now, there's two considerations with cost of fuel. One, obviously, is miles per gallon or kilometers per liter, depending on where you're from. But also what type of fuel it takes. A horrendous example of this is um, my Land Rover. I've owned a couple of Land Rovers. The last one I owned was a 2004 Land Rover SE Discovery Series 2, and it got a whopping 11 miles a gallon. And as terrible as that is, it required premium fuel. Just abysmal. In fact, it was cheaper for me to tow my Land Rover with my Bluebird Wander Lodge motorhome that got 9 miles per gallon 
than to just drive the Land Rover, because at that time, diesel was much cheaper than gasoline, and that's what the Wander Lodge used. So you have to do some math there. But in general, with most vans, you're just comparing gasoline to gasoline, and it's pretty simple. Diesel makes things a lot more complicated. First off, these days, diesel is usually more expensive than gasoline, although prices have come down a lot recently, which is wonderful. In fact, I saw a place selling gas south of Chicago where diesel was cheaper than unleaded, so that was pretty cool, although most of the times it's usually 40 to 50 cents more for diesel. But diesel isn't the end of it. Modern diesel vehicles also need a thing called DEF, diesel exhaust fluid, and you need to add that as well. So not only is it more complexity and more stuff and more stuff to go wrong, you also have to pay for that fluid, and the costs of that fluid vary greatly. The cheapest I have found for that fluid is either at the pump at some of the truck stops where you can just get DEF at the pump, or Walmart's brand in these big boxes. That's been the cheapest. But think about how much fuel you're going to use in a van that doesn't get great gas mileage over the course of 100,000 miles, and you can see that that's a major expense. Now, the other one, and the one I'm going to talk about with... Uh, <laughs> Some detail here is cost of repairs and maintenance. This can also be a huge one. And I did a bit of research on this and I found that there is a vast difference between the three vans that are available in the US right now. We'll talk about that in a second. The fourth one is resale value. That's part of TCO because if you spend $20,000 on a van, drive it for five years, and then sell it for $15,000, that's going to lower your total cost of ownership compared to a van that you could only sell for $10,000 or $5,000 or whatever. Now, I think you can discount that one to some extent because you're not buying a van for money, usually. You're buying a van because you have a life you want to lead and the van will help you do that, so I wouldn't worry too much about the resale value part. Plus, the market changes all the time. When I bought my NV200, I had no idea that I would be selling it for nearly double what I paid for it, simply because that's what the market was. So, it's a factor, but not something you have to worry about. However, factor number three, maintenance and repairs, I have a little story to tell. Now, you may remember that I mentioned I was having trouble with my van starting. Okay, I replaced the battery, I killed the battery, and that fixed it. It fixed everything. In fact, the van was running great. I took it out on a couple hundred mile trip last weekend. Everything was perfect, and I thought, okay, great. The van's doing good, but there's a couple of maintenance things I should take care of. The rear differential fluid and the power steering fluid were overdue to be changed. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to have those changed out, and then I don't have to worry about those parts failing or anything like that. Also, and this is for diesel folks, the exhaust gas recirculation valve seems to be sticky. <laughs> now, this is a particular problem for diesel vans. Over, all this thing does is it sends exhaust gases back through the engine to help reduce some nitrogen oxide and things like that. But over time, some carbon can build up on them and they can get sticky. And when that valve doesn't open properly, the van will hesitate and kind of jerk. And my van's been doing that a little bit, so eh, it's time to have it cleaned. Now, all three of these things I could probably do myself. It's not the end of the world. Power steering fluid change is kind of a pain if you don't have the right tools, but I could have done it. However, given that I've been sick and given that I've missed the entire spring, I'm feeling very behind on things. So I thought, okay, I'm going to let the dealership do this. And part of the reason I did is that they actually covered the exhaust gas recirculation valve uh, as a warranty item for some reason that I don't really understand. So great. Okay. 
So yeah, I'm paying more for this stuff than if I did it myself, but it's getting done. So I drop the van off and everything's fine. And I get a little note saying, hey, we found a couple of things in the van. I had this van looked at and did a major repair on last fall. The oil filter housing failed, covered the entire engine with oil, dissolved the serpentine belt. It was ugly and awful, but I had that fixed. So that was a major repair. I did not expect any other major repairs. And then I got the list of things that needed to be repaired and it, it shocked me. Guess how much extra it was going to cost me for these extra things. Now go ahead and make a guess. Okay, you're way too low. Raise it up a little bit. No, 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 no. No, a little meaning a lot. And if you didn't get to $6,500, that's where I'm at. I have a sudden $6,500 expense on this vehicle that was exhibiting no symptoms. The van was running fine. And suddenly I have to put $6,500 into it. So let me break that down for you just to give you an idea of what we're talking about here. First thing was brakes. All right, that's fine. That's a maintenance item. I get it. What I didn't get was that it's $1,800 to do the brakes. Ouch. Okay, fine. The transmission mount has collapsed. Apparently this is a thing with salt that I had no idea of. That was like $600. The vacuum pump is failing and leaking oil and it's leaking onto the alternator. So if I don't fix that, then my alternator is going to go out as well. That's also $1,800. Power steering has a leaky hose. Got to replace that. And their turbo resonator is leaking oil. Have to replace that too. They're also recommending that I replace the fuel filter again, even though I just replaced it. Because in this area, we have only biodiesel available, and that makes the fuel filter clog up quicker, so they want it replaced every 10,000 miles. Which doesn't sound like a big deal until you realize it's $300 to replace the fuel filter in this Sprinter. And coming up soon, I'm going to have to do the transmission service, which is $800 every 20,000 miles. You see the picture here? Now, if you're thinking, well, you just had a lot of bad luck and this is an ambulance and whatever. Yeah, all that's true. Or, geez, Jeff, you could save a lot of money if you took this to someplace other than the dealer. Absolutely true. But the two times I've taken this van someplace that wasn't the dealer, they've damaged the van. It took me four places to find a place that would put the tires on the van. And when I did finally find a place, they damaged my rocker panels. And when I had my oil changed at Jiffy Lube, which I wouldn't normally do, except that I didn't know how old the oil was and I just wanted to have a baseline, they damaged the oil filter housing that caused the problem to begin with. Anyway, sucks to be me. That's life. But there's a couple things to take away from this. First off, you must always have some way to pay for sudden repairs if you are out there on the road doing van life, because they can happen at any time when they're least expected. Again, this van was running perfectly. The other thing is that different vehicles cost different amounts to repair. Diesels cost more than gas to repair. Now, people argue diesels last longer, therefore you'll get some of that money back, but I don't think that's true anymore. Diesels these days will cost you more in fuel and more in repairs, and they cost more upfront. And when you do all the math, in my opinion, diesels come in last. They are more expensive. But also, 
there's differences in the major three brands of vans that are available in the U.S. right now. In the U.S., for a full-size van, basically all you can get that's still made is the Sprinter, the Promaster, and the Ford Transit. Now, the Chevy vans are still made, but they're about to be discontinued, so I'm going to put them aside because they're kind of old-school vans, and there aren't too many people doing build-outs with those, so I didn't research those. But I'll tell you what I did find of those three major vans. Now, keep in mind that most RV manufacturers who are using these vans are using Sprinters or Promasters. There aren't that many using Transits. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but they've been moving away from the Sprinters and more towards the Promasters lately, even high-end brands like Airstream. And I think I know why. But the cost differences between these are dramatic. If you own a Mercedes-Benz 2500, and I am comparing the 2500 series across all of these, on a normal year, you can expect to spend $2,181 on repairs in a normal year. That's just maintenance and repairs, and that's it. And you have a greater than 50% chance of needing a major repair. Let's compare that with the ProMaster. The ProMaster has a pretty high repair rate as well, but the average amount for annual repairs on the ProMaster is $1,147. It's $1,000 less in repair costs if you have a ProMaster rather than a Sprinter. And finally, there's the Ford Transit, only $947 a year for repairs and fewer repairs. In fact, Comparing all these vehicles, and they all have their problems, transits have brake problems, Promasters have engine and transmission problems, Sprinters have every damn problem. Yeah, I get that. But overall, at least according to RepairPal.com, which isn't a site that I love too much, but at least they have some data, you are going to spend less money on a transit than any other van. Now, does that mean that you should definitely always buy a transit? No, because there's other considerations other than total cost of ownership. And the reason I think that a lot of RV manufacturers are going to ProMasters rather than these other vans is they're much cheaper than Sprinters and they're much easier to build than Transits. ProMasters are nice and square. They're very wide. They're front wheel drive, which means they don't have drive shafts and a whole bunch of other stuff under there, which gives the builder much more space to work at under the van. Honestly, I'm going to say it. I think ProMasters are the best choice if you're building out a van. But cost-wise, ah, that prize goes to the Transit. And uh, at this point, given my experience with this van, my, my 2011 Sprinter 2500, I don't think I will ever, ever buy another German vehicle ever again. <laughs> I, I'm just done with all this. I've never owned a vehicle with this many problems. I am not abusing this thing in any way, shape, or form. I'm not driving it off-road. I'm not driving it at crazy speeds, and I'm keeping up with the maintenance, and it's still costing me a darned fortune. So, when you're choosing a van to build out, remember to take a look at total cost of ownership. Do the math. See how much the differences in gas mileage are going to affect you. See how much repairs are. And whatever decision you make, I support it. Just make sure it's an educated decision. Tech Talk. So, age-old question here. Should you let your engine warm up before you drive off? Well, the answer is no. 
<laughs> no, it's true. With modern engines, you really don't need to let the engine warm up anymore. In fact, all that does is, is waste fuel. Modern engines have computers that adjust all the timing and everything. It all happens on the fly. But when you're first warming up the engine, when the engine's cold, it uses a lot more fuel because it's trying to get up to temperature. You might as well get some miles done during that process. You're not going to hurt the vehicle. Now, if it's cold out, yeah, you're not going to have any heat until that thing warms up. But you'll get that heat faster if you drive. The only thing you should do is just drive a little bit more gently when the vehicle's still warming up. Don't go out when it's 20 below zero, start the engine, and then floor it and peel out. That would be bad. But go ahead, start the engine, give it 5-10 seconds as you put on your seatbelt and adjust your radio station, and then head out slowly. And that's actually what the vehicle is designed to do. So don't ever feel like you need to warm up the vehicle unless you really want to. And know that if you really want to, you're actually wasting a lot of fuel. But hey, I get it. Sometimes it's just really darn cold. Product review. This, this is a weird little thing that I picked up that I really like. It's, it's $12. I'm not even really sure how to describe it, but there is a common size of toggle switch that a lot of vehicles use, especially ambulances. I have a whole bunch of these things. They're just these rocker switches that are very common. You'll see them uh, for zombie lights and stuff. And a lot of people buy these plates where you can put in a whole bunch of these rocker switches to control lights or whatever. This thing fits in one of those holes, but it's not a switch. It's a combination voltmeter and USB port that you hook up to your battery, whichever battery you want, and then you know what your volts are and you have two places to charge things. It's a cute little thing. It costs 13 bucks and it's super handy because at a glance you can see your voltage and then you always have these two ports that you can always use to charge something. It has a cover and the cover's clever. It fits over it and you can still see the volts, but it covers those USB ports so no dust or anything gets into them. And it's a fairly robust charger. Now, it's fairly robust for the old days. Each one of those ports is 2.1 amps, which is the old fast charging. It's not the new fast charging. So, yeah, you're not going to want to try to charge your MacBook Pro off of these. But, you know, your cell phone, your watch, your like other electronics, they're totally going to charge just fine off of this. It's not the old 0.5 amp USB outlets that were terrible. I mean, hey, it's 13 bucks. And if you happen to have a rig where you have some blank slots in your toggle switch plates, pop one of these things in there and you're going to have a constant readout on your voltage and a couple of extra charging places. And, and heck, who doesn't need that? I'll have a link in the show notes. The one I got is by a, a brand called Yeah Loop. <laughs> yeah Loop. And it's called the Dual USB Rocker Switch Blue LED Digital Voltmeter Input 20 to 24 volts Output 5 volts 4.2 amps for fast charging electronic devices universal for all 12 volt to 24 volt cars. Because Amazon loves those things. Anyway, link in the show notes. I think it's a cool little thing. Tales from the Road. So way back when I first started working for James the Amazing Randy, I was traveling around. I had a chance to go to the Museum of Natural History in New York because they were having an exhibit on Darwin. 
what Darwin did, visiting the Galapagos and all this. And I liked the exhibit. The exhibit was fine. I bought a tie for myself. But they had these little Darwin dolls, these little plush dolls that are maybe 10 inches tall. And it was, you know, a little Darwin with the beard and a little suit. And I thought they were cute. So I, I bought one and I decided I was going to give it to Randy, you know, just as a little gift because he couldn't come with us on this trip. And I flew down to Florida where Randy was. And I said, hey, Randy, I picked you up this Darwin doll. And he said to me, that's not Darwin. And I like, I was like, well, yeah, uh, I got it at the Darwin display gift shop. That's Darwin. He's like, no, that's me. Now, somebody with the middle name of Amazing, it may not surprise you to understand that this man had a bit of an ego. And, uh, and in my opinion, it was well-earned. But he saw this doll and didn't see Darwin. He saw himself in it. And in fact, Randy did sort of resemble Darwin, <laughs> but he took this to quite a degree. He asked me to go buy a gross of these dolls online. That's 144. And I did. I found the manufacturer and I bought 144 of these dolls. And then he said, okay, now we need to make, make these look a bit more like me. So we bought all these accoutrements to go with these dolls. We bought glasses and little tiny playing cards and pins in case somebody wanted to use this as a voodoo doll and handcuffs because Randy was an escape artist. And we had volunteers come in to trim the hair on each one of these dolls and install those hidden playing cards and all this stuff. And then we, we sold the dolls as Randy dolls. <laughs> And, and as amusing as that is, and even though I had to point out to Randy that we're never going to make our money back on these, it didn't matter. We, we sold these Randy dolls for years, and they sat on people's bookshelves and stuff, and it was kind of cute. And I thought, okay, that was kind of fun and strange. But uh, one day, this Japanese television company contacted us, and they wanted to do a, a million-dollar challenge. Now, briefly, the James Randi Educational Foundation offered a million-dollar challenge to anybody who could display any supernatural or occult ability under scientific observing conditions. Well, you can search million-dollar challenge if you want to learn more about that. That, that. We could do a whole podcast on just that topic. But the Japanese company wanted us to fly to Tokyo and do a challenge there because they found an American who claimed to have the ability to have spirits read the contents of sealed envelopes, which was perfect for us. We could totally test that. It was interesting that the Japanese didn't want to use a Japanese contestant because they didn't want to embarrass them. So they had Americans test another American on a purely Japanese television show. And so first they flew to Miami, they met Randy, through a translator, we talked about how the show would be. And as they were heading out the door, the head producer of the show saw the Randy doll and said, through a translator, can I buy one of those? And we didn't really know this company very well, so we actually did actually just sell them the doll. We didn't give it to them because we didn't know how this was going to work out. And uh, yeah, we thought, okay, he, he thought that would be fun. So Randy and I flew to Tokyo and Randy did the show and it was a combination of Randy performing a magic trick to show his abilities. And then this guy claiming that the spirits could read the contents of these envelopes. And basically there were 10 envelopes and he had to tell us what was in the envelopes to, to win the million dollars. And that was real, by the way, we had the million dollars. We definitely would have paid him if he were able to do this. Spoiler alert. He wasn't, although the show was edited 
to make it look like he was close. And yeah, no, he wasn't close. And to the guy's credit, at the end, he did say that maybe he didn't have this ability that he thought he did, which was great. That was a rare thing. But after the show was filmed and we flew back to the States, six weeks later, we got a link from the Japanese company with a link to the show. Now, the show was in Japanese. There weren't even any subtitles, so we watched it. Uh, but we couldn't really tell what was going on. But at the very beginning, there was a stop-motion animation of the Randy doll walking around and doing, like, little magic tricks. <laughs> so thinking back on this, because I went to a Darwin exhibit in New York and bought a doll, audiences in Japan saw an animation of this doll doing magic tricks. Just one of those butterfly effect things, uh, not, no great import for the world by any means, but just an odd little thing that sometimes your tiny decisions can actually have a lot of repercussions. A place to visit. So I'm from Salem, Massachusetts. I've said that many times too many, probably, but in Salem, Massachusetts, there's this place called Winter Island. And if you are thinking of visiting Salem, and you're not really comfortable doing the self-camping thing, Winter Island is a campground. You can camp there, and I'll have a link in the show notes. I think I've talked about this before, but it doesn't matter. It is a very cool, unusual place. Now, Winter Island is an island. However, it is connected to land now. And it was called that because it was in the Winter Harbor. Salem has an amazing harbor, and there's a Winter Harbor where it was safe to bring in your sailing vessels for the winter. At that point, the ice wasn't going to get in there, and your vessels were safe. That's why they called it Winter Island, because it was the island in that harbor. And it always has had forts on it. Way back to the 1600s, there have been forts on this island, and the remnants of the forts are still there. Uh, they were most recently used in World War II to store ammunition. But in this campground that they have set up, you basically can camp either in the fort ruins, and the fort is like a smaller version of the forts at Dry Tortugas or Fort Warren in the Boston Harbor Islands. It's that kind of a thing. So you can camp right in there, or you can camp on the tarmac of the runway for the PBY base that used to be on the island. Now, PBY is a seaplane, and the Coast Guard used to have seaplanes there. In fact, the hangar is still there, and they used to head out and do submarine patrols from this island. But it is a campground, and you can pay a fee and park there, and you will not be that far from all the witchy stuff in Salem. Now, you probably will have to drive, but if you have brought bikes with you, you could very easily bike downtown and also bike to Salem Willows, which is this old-fashioned trolley park that's just kind of an... It has its own amazing history. I mean, again, I'm, I'm doing a five-minute segment here on something that could be a whole series. If you are at all interested in visiting New England this summer and you want to go to Salem, Massachusetts, check out Winter Island. It is one of the best places to camp that's unusual in New England. And, and I love it there. I have lots of crazy stories from uh, a youth there when the island was abandoned and we used to sneak out there and get into all kinds of trouble. So I'll have a link in the show notes, but it's Winter Island in Salem, Massachusetts. Resource recommendation. I encountered this many years ago and I still use it today. And this is a little strange. This is not going to be a resource for everybody, but it, it is a powerful resource for the creatives among you. People who know the struggle of writer's block, 
people who know the fear of the blank page, uh, people who might be doing a podcast and realize the deadline's up and they don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, th this is a resource for you guys. And it is called Oblique Strategies. Now, this started out as a deck of cards with the text written by Brian Eno, of the musician Brian Eno. If, if you've ever heard of bands like the Talking Heads and U2 and Devo and so on and so forth, Brian Eno helped produce all those bands back in the day. And Peter Schmidt, who is a graphic artist, they made this deck of cards. And the purpose of this deck of cards is that whenever you're stuck, you make a promise to yourself that you're going to do whatever the card says. So you flip open a card and it will say something like distorting time. Listen to the quiet voice. What would your closest friend do? The purpose of all these seemingly random sentences and questions is to change your way of thinking and get you out of your rut. If you start thinking about these things, it's going to lead to creativity. Now, the, these were originally created for musical problems, like you're halfway through a song and you don't know what you want to do for the chorus, whatever. Well, what would your closest friend do for the chorus? And once you start thinking about that, it's, it's a bit of lateral thinking. It's going to get you out of the thought loop that you're in so that you can envision new things. And you can use this for just about any aspect of life. If you are a content creator and you don't know what to do, do what the card says. Consider what your closest friend would do or make a sudden, destructive, unpredictable action. Incorporate. <laughs> Maybe you're living the van life and you've been out there on the road for six months and you don't know where to go next. Well, pick a card and see what it says. And this card says, once the search is in progress, something will be found. And you just do that. And that's it. That's all there is to this. These cards are not magic. They're not religious in any way. They're not spiritual unless you choose to make them that way. But they are a way to help you get out of whatever rut you're in. And I like them. Now, the cards themselves cost about $108 to get a brand new deck. And that might be asking a bit much. There was an app and there may still be an app, but I, I think it's, it's out of date now. However, there is still a website you can use. And I will have a link to that show notes. I'll give you the URL, but again, it's kind of long to remember. It is stony, S-T-O-N-E-Y dot S-B dot org slash Eno slash oblique dot HTML. And this website is pretty old, so it should work on all kinds of phones and stuff, but uh, it could go away at any time too. Anyway, just a thought for you creatives out there who get stuck, little bit of inspiration. Maybe you open one of these every morning and let it set the tone for the day, or maybe you just open it so that you can shout something weird to random strangers and see what happens. It's your life. You do what you want. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 162. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. If you would like to get a hold of me for any reason, I am Jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Remember this oblique strategy written by Brian Eno. Don't be afraid of things because they're easy to do.